Let's pray for them as they head out and for our teachers too. Dear Lord, we come to hear from you. We believe that you are a God who speaks. That the gift of speech comes from you and the gift of ears comes from you. And you know all the different ears here and what they need to hear this evening. I pray that they would hear you speak directly and deeply within them. They would find comfort and encouragement and direction and clarity and discipline, whatever they need, because they have come to sit and ask of you to speak to them. I pray you would open up this word from Ephesians for us. You would change us and strengthen us and send us out to love and serve you this week. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, again, welcome tonight. Uh, again, for those of you who were part of Fall Fest yesterday, thank you for all of you who took part, particularly Jen Stoker, in making that happen. Uh, again, I didn't make it but for the last eight minutes to help clean up. Uh, I spent part of this week out of the country, and then flying back, I flew early morning into Toronto, and, and it was a perfect storm of customs and lawsuit case, and from one airline to another, and I couldn't leave Canada without my bag, and America didn't want me without my bag, and no one could find my bag in the airport. And uh, at 5.30 in the morning in Toronto, Toronto time, uh, I met a, an airline personnel. She's coming to work, and she, I explained my predicament to her, and she said, what time's your flight? And I said, 6. She said, oh, you'll never make it. And <laughs> she was right. I never did. And uh, they put me on standby. I didn't make that flight, they put, which meant I didn't get to Fall Fest. They put me on the third flight and actually had, had canceled me out of that third flight at when they put me on standby but didn't realize it. So I showed up, gave him my boarding pass for the third flight and showed up as persona non grata. Was about to go a little prophetic um, and, uh, and didn't need to do that. So it was great. So I got home and again, I'm really sorry. I missed, sound like a really great time. So, so glad so many of you were a part of that. Um, as we come to worship tonight, I want you to try to imagine yourself in, in one of those places in your life where you were moving from from something to something. You were someone and you began to grow up into something and you began to say, oh, I'm this way now. And what did that look like? Like, for example, you knew you were, you were becoming, moving from kid to teenager because you could say to your folks, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. And maybe that meant like no more babysitters, right? So you're like, you're in the house and it's dark and you start to hear things that you don't hear when your mom and dad are there. And you're like, ooh, that's kind of freaking me out. But I'm not a kid anymore. I'm not supposed to be freaked out. But gosh, I'm kind of freaked out. Like, what was that like? to grow up that way. Or maybe you got your driver's license and you thought, I'm really a teenager now. Or you graduated from school, from high school and went to college and felt like, well, I'm paying my bills and my own checkbook. And then of course the 37 different people who told you, you really need a credit card. And, you know, you had a credit card that you didn't know how to pay, but you kept using it and realized, I need to be an adult, pay my credit card or whatever those pieces were like. Maybe it's as a, as a parent. Lots of us here are parents. And that, that sense when you knew you were a parent, you brought a baby home from the hospital who was your baby, but you didn't feel like a parent, right? That like, oh my gosh, they gave me this baby. And they, do they, are they insane? How can a baby, how can the hospital give me a baby, even if it's my baby and I left the hospital with it? You know, what did, what did it mean to suddenly feel like I'm really a parent now, to walk into this new identity you had? I have this distinct memory of our oldest being about six months old, and we were, it was our first real dire, you could be dying all night, stomach flu episode. And being up, and my wife was sick in our room with the stomach flu, and our son was sick in his room, and I was laying on the floor of his room, and I thought, 
I feel like, a, I know I'm a parent now. I feel like a parent. <laughs> I didn't feel good, but I knew I'd, met, I'd crossed some marker. Like, what did it look like to walk into this new sense of identity? We have been in the book of Ephesians for several weeks and have come through the first half of the book, the first three chapters. And the whole first three chapters, Paul is reminding us and telling us who we are if we've given our life to Jesus, what it means to have been given this new identity as a Christian, someone Jesus has saved, rescued. And he spent three chapters telling us, Jew and Gentile, these original listeners gathered around the city of Ephesus learning about our new identity. And he's shifting now. There's a shift here in these chapters, the second half of the book, which is what we start tonight, from not just who you are to what's it mean to walk, to live as a Christian. What's it mean to live this out? The Anglican pastor and theologian John Stott says this about this transition, this particular chapter. For three chapters, Paul has been unfolding for his readers the eternal purpose of God being worked out in history. Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled a fractured humanity being united, even a new humanity, we talked about this a few weeks ago, a new ethnicity being created. And now the apostle moves on from the new society to the new standards, which are expected of it. What's it look like to live as this new society? What, from what God has done to now what we are to do. And there's going to be a shift in tone. You're going to, he's been doing exposition. This is what's happened. You know, the, the tense has been the indicative. Here's what's indicated in what God has done. And he's going to move from that to exhortation, to the imperative. Therefore, now, go and live a certain way. The imperative tense is used 41 times in the book of Ephesus. One time in the first three chapters. 40 times in the next three chapters, what we're starting to now. And Paul's intent here is that you and I would grow up into this new identity. We would walk worthy of the calling. This is the phrase you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Ephesians 4. If you want to use a pew Bible, it's page 977. But this line, this phrase, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That could be a thesis statement for the entire second half of the book. What's it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Another way to say that would be to live as who you really are. One scholar says it's kind of like this, like let's say that you, were, you, you um, found a cure for cancer in the lab. You're a scientist and a doctor and you figured out this collection of chemicals and, and drugs will help stop cancer and you knew it. Over and over again, every trial it worked. And the question then becomes, well, what do you do with that cure? Do you walk it out of the lab? And you knew walking out of the lab would get messy because you'd have to suddenly bring in people who weren't scientists. You'd have to raise capital, and you'd have to find people who could manufacture it. You'd have to get syringes, and it would get dirty, and people would be sick, and people would be frustrated, and the whole drug company insurance mess, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you just thought, you know, I really don't want my beautiful cure to get befouled by this process, and I'd rather just stay in the lab. And that's kind of what Paul is saying. Don't stay in the lab. The first three chapters are the cure. You and I have been given the cure for what ails humanity for all of history. Restored relationship to God and each other. Don't stay in the lab. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Grow up. I said my, my title here is We Are Really Growing Now. In the last couple of weeks I've sent out links on Monday or Tuesday of things I referenced. I'll send out this link tomorrow. There's a Trigon Hospital commercial 
of a little boy. And this phrase is borrowed from that. We love this commercial in our house. It's 30 seconds. It's a really sweet African-American little boy. And he is showing you all his karate moves. And he does all this stuff, how he's getting stronger. Someone must have asked him, what do you do to get strong, to grow up and get strong? And so he's doing all these things. And at the end, he says, ooh, he says, we are really growing now. We are really growing. And he's pumped. He's excited. That's what Paul is saying. You and I are supposed to grow up. We are supposed to be really growing now. And the second half of the book is going to guide us into how that looks. In this first paragraph, he's going to give three imperatives, three of the 40. And he's going to focus on three things. Each of these things will have an imperative attached to it. Unity, diversity, and maturity. Okay, unity, diversity, and maturity. What are those imperatives for those things? How are they to look for us? So imperative number one is this. We're to live out our unity in Jesus-demonstrated humility. Live out our unity. Paul has been describing this new unity for a couple chapters. If you've been with us, you know he's really gotten into this and gone on and on. Jew and Gentile who hated each other. You cannot stress it enough. Absolute, undeniable hatred between each other are now being formed into this new term from Clement of Alexandria, 2nd, 3rd century, new ethnicity, heaven's new ethnicity, Jew and Gentile, Christian. All unity, joined together. Joined together because of the work of Jesus. But you can imagine what that would be like. You, if you want to really see it, all you have to do is read the other epistles in the New Testament. Because you have you know, people from Egypt here, and people from Rome here, and people from Italy here, and people from Israel here. You have people who like different kinds of foods, different kinds of clothes, different kinds of calendars. What days were important? What food was important or really actually not even important, but really nasty. You weren't supposed to eat it, not connect you to God food. Different professions, different colors of skin, male and female. That's hard enough, right? Now bring them all together, shake them up. Say, you're one, you're supposed to live this new way in unity. What's that look like? And Paul's trying to stress, first... Where does that start? Where does that unity start from? If you look at the verses, first he starts with the caller of the unity. He starts with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you get this list of things that the Trinity does. So you are ontologically already established as one. Now you're learning to live it out. Like when you're married. The day after your wedding, you might not feel married, but you're married. You bring a baby home from the hospital, it's your baby. You might not feel like a parent, but you are. And you might not feel like a Christian, but now you have to live it out. First, it starts with what Jesus has done. No surprise that this is what Paul is doing. What's the Trinity do? The Father creates the one family. The Lord Jesus creates the one faith, hope, and baptism. The one Spirit creates the one body. This is what's happened to you. In light of that, this common caller, what should our unity look like? And here Paul gives this list of examples that really are, on the one hand, you have pride. On the other hand, you have what it looks like to live as a new citizen of heaven. Okay, John Stott also says pride is the root of all discord. All discord. So think about your week. You could, you could filter that this week. Test it out. See if it's true. Okay? But let's say you're driving somewhere this week and someone cuts you off. Right? And they cut you off going fast. Why? Probably because their pride, their life, their schedule, their urgency is more important than whether you live or not. So their pride drives you over and, and they cut you off and how do you respond? What happens in you? Your pride hit my pride. You think that your schedule is better than my schedule? And now you're saluting each other and you're driving down the road, right? And the root of that is pride. 
right? The root of all this discord is pride. And what Paul is saying is, okay, this is what used to guide you. This is what you used to walk in. Now walk into something different. Here, these are what your things you're supposed to walk in instead. Humility, be humble. Let this be your distinctions. Be humble. In the ancient world, being humble was a terrible thing to be. No one espoused humility. About this time, a few years after Paul, a Roman writer wrote and said, run from humility. Don't make it something a part of you. Jesus changes the entire world's idea of what humility meant. Be humble. C.S. Lewis says being humble is not thinking less of yourself like I'm terrible. To be humble, I just must think about how low down I am and terrible I am. But thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So less time. So in your, let's say the office, you don't sit and go, I shouldn't even take coffee here because I'm not even worthy of the money they're spending for the lights that are on. And like wallowing in, that's not humility. Thinking of yourself less times might be like, what I'm going to do is find out how the people in my cubicle area like their coffee, and I'm going to bring them coffee today. Because I don't, I'm thinking of them, not of myself. Be humble. Be gentle. Be aware of who others are. The, the Greek here, here is for controlled power. Being gentle is a powerful act. It's controlling power. And one of the verbs they use are the same verbs they use to train animals. How you take an animal in its power and train him to be gentle. And the way they describe it, a, a gentle animal is someone, I love this, is someone who's always angry at the master's enemies and always happy with the master's friends. Angry with the enemies, happy with the friends. Doesn't that sound just a little bit like hate sin, love the sinner? Be gentle. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Don't be self-absorbed. My schedule, my life, my needs and desires are the ultimate thing that should drive everything I do. Bear with one another in love. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Extend forgiveness. Extend grace before they even need it. And be eager to maintain unity. This whole selection are echoes of Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Some of the same words are in both of those lists. This is what it looks like to live in unity. If you want to walk out this new identity, let these things become, make them part of who you are. You're going to see later in the chapter this call for maturity. And one of the things we learn is that these kinds of things are what define whether we're mature or not. Whether we're really growing now. One way to know how your unity meter is, is maybe to ask somebody who is close to you, a roommate, a friend, a family member, a coworker you trust, a child. Look at these five things. How would you say I do? What's my strength? Ask for that one first. What am I strong in of these five? And then maybe what am I weak in of these five? They're supposed to mark us. When we get together, these are the kind of things that should mark our small groups and our Sunday nights and our fall fests and other things. It's what we're supposed to look like in unity. So first, this imperative, live out the Jesus-demonstrated humility. The second imperative Paul has here is to embrace our Jesus-given diversity to serve. Embrace our Jesus-given diversity to serve. We're moving from all of us, the unity piece, to each of us, the diversity piece. Our unity, we find out in chapter 2, is because of this Greek word charis, grace. It's by grace that you've been saved. Those who are dead to sin, all of us. Those who were far, particularly the Gentiles among us. But now because of this grace, you've also been given something specific. 
God has given you specific gifts, charismata, gifts, that we need. People need those gifts for us to be the thriving, heaven-citizen-looking community we're supposed to be. Your gifts, we want to be used. This is not charismata in the charismatic movement sense, although that is a big part of what's going on in God's kingdom now in the world. But it's in a, each of you have been given gifts by Jesus since. And what Paul is stressing here is not the gift but the giver and the reason. It's less the gift than the giver and the reason. Jesus gave you gifts. Look at this, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So again, the giver is Jesus. And if you keep reading, you realize the reason we're given these gifts, and he's stressing teaching gifts here, which we'll touch on in a second. But the reason those gifts are given to us is to serve and bless others. The gifts are not for you. Well, look at me, look at me, I'm cool, I got this cool Jesus gift. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Which goes back to the first section and what it means to not live self-absorbed. My dad has a baseball, which this week is kind of a sad baseball because my dad, my 80-year-old father, is a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan. And if you know anything about Chicago Cubs fan, you know their their reward in heaven will be great because it sure is not great here. (laughs) So there was hope. Till Wednesday, right, that, that maybe the Cubs could get to the World Series, right? But they didn't because the sin-stained Mets blew it and ruined it for everybody. But in my house, we, I grew up with my dad, had this baseball that is, was given to my grandmother for my dad by Phil Cavaretta. Phil Cavaretta was the National League MVP of the Chicago Cubs in 1945. My dad still has this ball. He was 10 years old when he got the ball. And what matters to him is not, look at me, look at me, look at me. I have this baseball. It's who the ball is from. Phil Cavaretta gave my dad this ball through my great-grandmother. The giver is what matters for that baseball. The giver, Jesus gave you and I gifts to serve. And then what he stressed here, again, is these teaching gifts. Now, this is one of several different gift sections in the New Testament. So there are lots of gifts. They are not all teaching-related. But here he's particularly stressing those in our community who have been given teaching gifts and teaching responsibility. So read again some of these. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. The gifts are important to equip you all. I'm a pastor. Lord willing, I've been given and refined teaching gifts, not for myself, so I can wear a t-shirt around. It says, I'm a teacher. Teacher, teacher. Gold letters. No, for you all, for you all, for you all, for you all. So that you can walk in a manner worthy. I walk in a manner worthy if I use those gifts well for you. I don't walk in a manner worthy if it's all about me gathering attention for something I'm doing. Gifts of teaching are really, really important. They're to guard, encourage, enlighten, strengthen, inspire, and protect the community. It's one of the reasons we pray for the men and women who go out with our kids to teach. Because what they're doing there really, really matters. Good and creative and engaging teaching is essential because what we're teaching about is the healing of the entire world the plan for all eternity, the cure for what ails the entire history of humanity. That's all. 
of course it should be stewarded really, really well. We're disclosing the mystery of the world. We read in chapter 3, verse 10, that is so amazing it blows the mind of angels, the authorities in heaven. So teaching is not, for again, for us, but to give away. It's to build up your dreaming and build up your imagination and be partnering with the Spirit of what God would want you to do. So if you have opportunities to, get, to, to use these gifts, you should guard them and hone them and refine them. It should be a craft. If you are going to serve downstairs, please don't show up having given 11 minutes to look at the curriculum that came to you on the Thursday or Friday when you got it online. Please pray over the kids. Please make sure you know what the point is. Please prepare your heart to love and embrace who's there. Please take seriously what you're doing. Reading this this week, it's an exhortation to me. How do I use my time? How do I prepare? Because my job is to feed you all. It's an imperative. So, our Jesus-given unity... Our Jesus demonstrated humility. What's it mean to live out the diversity of these gifts? Other times we'll talk about the other gifts, which are full in this room, and how you can use yours. But why are these gifts important? Why are the teaching gifts particularly important? It leads to the third imperative, how we live in a manner worthy. We lean into our Jesus-guided maturity. You could turn to page 978 if you're using a pure pew Bible. Until, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, there's that word again, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You don't have to read much of Paul to realize he expects you and I to grow. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 2, it's also the writer of Hebrews and Hebrews 5. Again, the characteristics we saw in verses 2 and 3 are signs of us growing into maturity. There's an expectation that not, we don't just come and get this new identity, we grow into it more fully. We come to understand it in a deeper way. We need to grow if we're going to experience the fullness and live out the way God wants us to live. There are kids here who can't read. There's nothing wrong with that. But if in 10 years they couldn't read, we might want to know why. Before 10 years, we might want to figure out how we can help them learn to read. What can we do to come alongside these children to help them read? It's not wrong not to know, to be young. It is wrong if there's, there's something wrong developmentally if we're not growing and walking alongside people to do that. And here, one of the major signs of maturity is not only the things of verses 2 and 3, but being able to understand the difference between good teaching and bad. Maturity brings with it the capacity to evaluate various forms of teaching because there will be teaching that is in contrast to what Paul is teaching about. And a sign of maturity is knowing what that is and choosing healthy, strong teaching right from wrong. What has Jesus really done and who are we now? This clear word of Paul, again, grow up. How do we do that? You make up your mind, you study, you pray, you get counsel, you ask people so that you walk with the Lord in the newness of the situations facing you. Don't be tossed by the waves. Think again. Let's use an example. So think about, um, let's think about food as an example. Let's think about what you ate for breakfast when you were six or seven. Maybe Frosted Flakes, Count Chocula, Fruit Loops, Captain Crunch. How many of you had that for breakfast every day this week? 
How many of you think about that would be a really good idea? You're going to go into your office downtown. You're going to say, you know, I had this bowl of Cap'n Crunch today, and I'm ready to rock whatever I need to do. <laughs> Committee I need to be in, spreadsheet I had a crunch, I am ready. About 45 minutes later, you'd be on the floor because the sugar burn would have burned off. How many of you this week um, had Greek yogurt in some way, shape, or form? Okay, lots of you had Greek yogurt. How many of you had Greek yogurt because you think um, you're committed to the Greek economy and you assume this could help in some way? <laughs> how many of you had Greek yogurt because you know, it, uh, you had, how many of you would have eaten Greek yogurt 10 years ago in any way, shape, or form? One, two very brave souls. How many of you had Greek yogurt because you know it's higher in protein and lower in carbs, it's better for you than regular yogurt? Why? Because you've, you've matured. You're not eating Captain Crunch. You know you need something better to be stronger. Grow up. And if you came in here and you pitched, I'm eating Captain Crunch, it's great. I hope somebody will look and go, that's not great. It might be dumb. Like beyond not great to dumb. And what's spiritually what Paul is saying in the expectation over and over and over again, he uses phrases like, I'm giving you milk because you can't digest meat yet. It's because he wants you and I to grow. Because the world we live in demands strong Christians who can thrive, who are unity and diversity and mature. Being mature means being decisive and resolute about Jesus. And committing to a lifelong journey of understanding how Jesus and this good news from Paul matters in my life now. It means pursuing questions like Jesus and vocation. What's it mean for my job and my work in my life? Jesus and my neighbors. Jesus and my mouth. We'll see that later in this chapter. Jesus and my finances. Jesus and my body. Jesus and my future. Jesus and my path. Past and on and on and on. To be mature means consistently cultivating an understanding and application of the good news of Jesus in our present day and age, right now. And to do that, you need good teaching. You do. I do. Let me give you three places where, that I found very helpful in the last couple years for good teaching for me. One is a, a, a website and a group and a movement and a conference called the Q Ideas Movement. And the website is qideas.org. QIdeas.org, that's simple. They have conferences every year and other places around the country. And they have a series of articles that roll out every week. And they'll ask a question like, what does it mean as a Christian to deal with ISIS? And they'll get four or five people who write articles and respond to that. What do we do with our bodies and sexuality? What should we think about marriage in this day and age? What would Jesus say about wealth and simplicity? And they get a series of responses. And whether it's that website or not... I know you are asking those questions. I'm asking those questions. And that is a godly, gospel-driven, Paul-approved type of website that you can go and wrestle with what they're doing there. Another place that I've been really encouraged the last six months or so is with a, a man that many of you have heard of named Eric Metaxas. Eric Metaxas is most well-known as a writer. Um, he wrote a, a, a copious biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer a few years ago. He's written on a William Wilberforce. And just in the last six months, he started a podcast. And this is a really fun and insightful podcast. He has all kinds of people on, people that love Jesus from a wealth of different angles of their faith. And Eric Metaxas, he is excited about life. He's not daunted by sin. He's not daunted by the state of the United States and the world. He's excited to embrace life and what the gospel brings to him. 
I encourage you to check that podcast out. There's all kinds of people who've been on there. And the third thing that has been helpful for me, and I'm in the middle of it, encourage you to do, is just to read church history. Right now I'm reading a book, rereading some of a book on the Reformation. The 1500s and this birth of the Protestant church. Because I want to look at what's it like for a church when things are in flux and persecution's high and morality's kind of at play to see what did the church do? How did we, our unified, diverse, seemingly mature community 500 years ago, respond to the culture at that time? I'd encourage you to to grab a book of church history. If you have an interest or aren't sure, feel free to ask me. Email me or ask me at the service, where would you read? What would you read? What is encouraging is to see how other people leaned into these sorts of questions and issues. It's somewhat encouraging to see uh, just how poorly we did it, and yet the kingdom still spreads. I mean, some of the decisions you can't help but just go, okay, even I know that was dumb. And yet God's word continues to grip and change lives. Because underneath this particular imperative, this call to maturity, is the assumption that you and I will have opposition. There will be views other than the first three chapters of Ephesians about Jesus and about the world and about man and woman. Different than what Paul has laid out. There will be counter arguments, pulls against unity. Pulls against diverse people coming together in Jesus or any other way, frankly. There will be pushes against diversity. Temptation to only be with people like you. Dress like you, think like you, read like you, listen to the music you do, eat like you, like the same hymns or songs we do on Sunday night like you, look like you. That pull and that push is totally contra the first three chapters of this book and what Jesus did on the cross for you and me. But there will be arguments and teaching inviting you into that kind of life. And there will be waves that you could be tossed by against the truth of Jesus. That's why Paul's saying, mature, grow up, put away the Pop-Tart, embrace the Greek yogurt, don't be tossed. Which is just a great subtle reminder as we turn our way to this part of the book, that following Jesus is a wholehearted commitment. It is a wholehearted, lifelong commitment. It requires time and seriousness and intention and sacrifice and others and mentors and planning. Because again, you and I have been handed the mystery of the cure of the ages. And you're not only to walk worthy of that message for yourself. You're supposed to walk worthy of it for the world. And to spread it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you again. First, and as always, a constant reminder that this whole life starts with the caller. This whole encouragement from Paul is first begins in all the work you have done. One faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit, all the work of you. And the amazing gift then that you would bring us together as one. We are really different, just a few of us here. 
pull us together and produce these fruits, this humility and this patience and this gentleness that you want us to have. And then, Lord, thank you for giving us gifts. Help us learn what our gifts are in you. Help us learn how to to bless and share with one another what those are. Guide those of us in leadership with how to best release people to use those. And then, Lord, give us the courage and the help we need to mature. Grant us people and resources and conversations and comments that all help us not to be boats tossed by every wind and current and, wind and, and ripple of the ocean, but to sail straight to you. Guide us now as we come to, to take communion, to be reminded again of the utter commitment you have to each of us here. Maybe there's somebody here tonight who isn't sure of that commitment from you. Maybe there's something they've done this week, and they think, mm, I, bet, I bet I'm outside that one faith, one Lord thing now. Remind them again of the first part of the book, that we were all dead, and we were all far, and we've all been brought near. In your holy name, amen.